Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. And today we're going to be talking about infinity and the Kalam cosmological argument as we respond to Surus the Skeptic. And he has a uh, video on this that is pretty recent. I've never done a response video specifically to him, so this should be fun. Stick around. Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I am making a mistake in my very gross oversimplification. I could be wrong. Am I incorrect. A lot of times I rely on you guys to fact check me and get me correct if I am incorrect on things. Am I incorrect? Incorrect. Incorrect. All right, so we're going to jump right into it here. I want to say a couple of things. First of all, uh, from what I can tell, there's some things I really like about Cirrus. One of those things is his humility. There are a number of times where he admits to maybe not being an expert on a particular thing, and there are some times where he tries to give atheists uh, you know, advice about bad arguments to use against Christians, but as we're going to see, I think in at least one of those cases, it kind of backfires. But uh, the point is, I do appreciate that humility. Um, I think he's the kind of guy that I could enjoy hanging around with and from what his background looks like, maybe geeking out with. And so, Cirrus, if you see this, uh, I appreciate that about you. And as you, as always, whenever I respond to something like this, I'm responding to the content. I'm not responding uh, specifically to the person. And so I want you to know that, that you seem like a great guy. I'm sure we could be friends. Uh, but uh, I got to say some straightforward things about the response uh, that you made here about the Kalam. So uh, he's responding actually to a, a Christian video where someone is giving some variation of the Kalam cosmological argument. And so we're going to go ahead and get started. If you've heard me do the Kalam before, I think we're going to hear some new things, some new ideas, and some of the stuff you've heard in the past. I have a lot on this in the playlist for uh, Evidence for God on the YouTube channel. You can check those out if you want to go further. But let's go ahead and begin right now with... Cirrus uh, and what he has to say in response to this video. Let me make sure I have it on normal speed. Okay. It, it starts with an obvious truth that hopefully we can all agree on. The universe exists. Well, solipsists, go ahead and get out of the chat. If, if you're a solipsist, it's time to leave. Because that's, that's already not an obvious truth. If we were to accept that the universe does in fact exist uh, simply for pragmatic reasons, you know, then fine. Yeah, in fact, uh, let's go ahead and see. He, he goes on about this again right here. If you don't agree with that, I can't help you. But let's assume you do. If I love how it's if you don't agree with that, I can't help you. Okay, but what are you like again? What if you're talking to a solipsist? Solipsists are those people that think that they are the only ones who actually exist or uh, believe that, that they can't know that the external world exists, that they are the only ones who actually exist. And uh, there's kind of an old funny joke about this that I think Alvin Plantinga tells about how he went to visit someone who was a solipsist and the secretary was taking him up to meet doctor, whoever he was that was a solipsist. And uh, they say, oh, yeah, uh, Dr. So-and-so, we really like to take care of him because when he goes, we all go. Ha ha ha. The idea being that as if he's right, you know, that he's the only one that actually exist and the rest of the world are figments of his imagination. Uh, he objects to the fact that uh, this uh, person in the video says, uh, I don't know what to tell you if you if you think that solipsism is true. Right. And that's not strange. Let's let's hear if he says anything else. Like if you're talking to a solipsist, this whole conversation becomes very different. Yeah, it's perfectly fine to say if you're a solipsist, I don't know what else to say to you, because uh, what you're saying is you're taking your skepticism so far that all you can know, uh, all that you can claim knowledge about is your own existence. Um, you can actually go further than that. If you wanted to go far enough to say something like, you can't even go with the cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, because you're arriving at that based on reason. And how do you know that you're reasoning properly, that you have reliable reasoning faculties? So there's no end to the skepticism here. But um, with solipsism, yeah, that's all I can tell you, because there's no way to... Uh, effectively prove uh, the external world if, if you if you take that approach. In fact, I'm not the only one who thinks so. There's a lot of things that Sirius says here that sound like Matt Dillahunty, and it makes me wonder if you ever heard this. Uh, wait a second. Let's see here. What did I miss? Uh, where's the Dillahunty clip? Yeah, here it is. Uh, Dillahunty responds a little bit about the idea of solipsism here, and it looks like to me that Dillahunty is willing to say something like, um, if you want to go with solipsism, I don't know what else to tell you. Let's hear what he says. So I think that there are a number of things that we can rationally do. So do you, do you believe, going back to my opening statement, um, that there is an external world? Do you believe that that's rational? 
Uh, so my acceptance of the external world is entirely practical. I can't demonstrate it. I mean, so this is the idea of solipsism. You could all be figments of my imagination. I don't believe that that's the case, uh, primarily because I think it would be absolutely arrogant to think that I came up with all the brilliant things those scientists came up with that I don't understand. And I think it's also potentially self-defeating that at one point I didn't understand something, and at this point I do, to the extent that I understand anything. And so whoever taught me that, if they were a figment of my imagination, that would have been me teaching me, and I don't, it, it, it seems rather schizophrenic. Yeah, you know, it, kind of well, it is schizophrenic. And so as a matter of practical reality, I'm fine with accepting that this is real and that there's an external world until such time as somebody demonstrates that there's not. So just to clarify. By the way, uh, someone made a video that in our debate, when we were talking about libertarian freedom, I was saying how uh, libertarian freedom seems so obviously to be the case and so powerfully intuitive that um, I'm justified on the principle of credulity in believing that until such a time as somebody presents me overwhelming evidence that I don't have libertarian freedom. And Matt Dillahunty, the guy right now, said that is actually a fallacy. But later in the same debate said the very thing that was said that he said right here, which is uh, I'm justified in believing that uh, I have that, that, that the external world exists until such a time as somebody demonstrates to me that it's not true. Okay, so uh, playing fast and loose with our what we're calling fallacies there, and it's not a fallacy anyway. But um, uh, I just want to point out that it looks like Dilanti is happy to say here uh, that, yeah, what the person in the Kalam video says, which is, if you think that that's true, I can't really help you with that. But uh, anyway, the point is, Sir says that, uh, yeah, well, it's not fair. You can't just say, I, I don't know what to tell you. Well, that seems to be what Dillahunty is saying. So uh, let's continue now. The universe exists. We have two options. Either it had a beginning or it had no beginning. Well, there's really good evidence that the universe had a beginning. Oh, and given the imagery, what they're going to argue is that the Big Bang was the beginning of the universe. Let's continue on. Big Bang cosmology, the second law of thermodynamics. Philosophically, it's impossible to have an infinite regress. So, hold up. Philosophically, it's impossible to have an infinite regress. Why? We're going to tell you. Let's, let's go ahead and just start on here. Let's ignore the fact that they just dropped the second law of thermodynamics in there for reasons, I guess. They just... Right in the barrel. Okay, uh, yeah, there's actually a good reason why you would put that in there, because the, uh, the principal case that's being made here about the beginning of the universe could be argued for, um, you, could, uh, you could support that argument with scientific stuff or with philosophical stuff. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics comes in when we're talking about the scientific side of that. Um, here is why that's in there, Cyrus. The laws of thermodynamics predict that a closed system, that is say a system that doesn't have energy being fed into it, eventually will run down and quit as its energy is exhausted. Now, on atheism, the universe just is a gigantic closed system, since there is nothing outside of it feeding energy into it. By the way, uh, you might be thinking if you're an atheist, well, wait a minute, this local representation of the universe, but what about a multiverse out there uh, that's outside of the physical universe? We're going to get to that. Just stick with us. What that means is that over enough time, the universe will eventually run into a state of thermodynamic heat death of one sort or the other. Now, if that will happen in a finite amount of time, then why hasn't it already happened if the universe has already existed for infinite time? The universe should now be in a dark, dilute, lifeless, cold state. But it's not. This indicates that the universe has not existed from infinity past, but began to exist a finite time ago with a certain amount of energy put in as an initial condition, and it's been running down since then as it expands. That is the reason, Cyrus, and anyone else who might be interested, that is the reason why uh, this is an important issue to bring up, because it shouldn't have just happened a long time ago. You've got an infinite past. It should have happened an infinite amount of time ago. That we're not to that point in the physical universe yet indicates that the universe is not is is not past infinite that there is a finite history for the universe and that energy just hasn't run out all right so let's get back to it and see what else is said 
And let's go ahead and focus on the fact that they said philosophically, an infinite regress is impossible. Now, I know that I've got some people in my chat who are decently versed in philosophy. I know that I've got Callan in there. I know I've got Brian Stevens in there. Um, so my question to you guys and anybody else in the chat as well who is philosophically inclined, can you tell me or anybody else for the rest of the class what the issues are with an infinite regress? Because last I checked, there actually isn't a problem with an infinite regress. The only problem we have is our ability to perceive an infinite regress. The real lock for $2. $2 Okay, so now what he does here is he asks his chat room to give him the problems with the infinite regress because the only thing he's aware of, and he comes back to this at least one other one or two other times in the video, and pretty much everything that he says about the past history of the universe collapses into this one criticism that it's not that past infinite universe, past history of the universe being infinite is impossible. It's just that we can't perceive, we can't conceive of it. It's just our incredulity about the matter. And he never uh, backs that up. He just asserts it. But we're actually going to respond to that directly um, in just a few moments. Uh, let's go ahead and hear something else here about this. The explanation from before, a finite regress. Whoops, that's in... Let's see. He's going to explain now what the difference is. So we want to make clear that he understands the difference between finite and infinite. I'm glad he does, but let's hear him explain it. This is like my birth leading to, or my, my birth coming from my mom's birth, coming from her mom's birth, coming from her mom's birth, etc. That's a finite regress. An infinite regress is a series of events leading all the way, and there's no back. Like, instead of going all the way back to the beginning, you are going all the way, and it keeps going and going and going, and it never stops. Um, and it's a regress because you are going backwards in time. Okay, this is the point I'm always making on this video, that it's not like, infinity is not like there's just a really big number. Like, in, like we use that colloquially in just everyday life as uh, there's an infinite number of grains of sand on the beach, or an infinite number of atoms, or an infinite number of stars in the sky. But, we don't, but if we say that, a philosopher should understand that if he says that, he's being imprecise. There actually is a number of grains of sand on all the beaches of all the worlds that you can possibly, that, that actually exist. In fact, if there's a multiverse, uh, there's a number for all the atoms that exist in all the multiverses. There is actually a number. It's an obscenely high number, but there is a number nonetheless. That's not infinite. He grasps, Suris grasps correctly, that infinite means there is no number. You can't put a number on it because it's it just literally goes on forever and ever and ever and ever, and then you're just getting started. There is no number. So it's, it's, uh, it's not like it's a really high number. There is no number. All right, want to understand that. So, what are the actual problems with an infinite regress? Well, the only real problem with an infinite regress is perception. I can hear the puppy. The only real problem is perception. As a human, we cannot perceive the infinite. We can't even fathom the infinite. In okay, uh, so he says that's the only problem. I, gosh, yeah. We cannot perceive the infinite. We can't even... Yeah, okay, I had that in there a couple of times. I'm trying to keep this straight. Okay, so I've gotten to where I want to get to in a minute. We're going to take a look at this video from Capturing Christianity. And... Uh, I here, here's the thing. There's a, there's a several problems with the infinites. For some of you who have watched this channel a lot, you may have heard me lay out a couple of these. We're going to talk about a new one here that is actually a pretty new analogy and explanation of what's wrong with uh, past infinite universe. The first problem with... So we could talk about actual infinites and potential infinites. Potential infinites don't actually exist in physical reality. They're conceptual. Um, an actual infinite is to say uh, about something like, let's say, not atoms, but some object, there's an actual no, in, infinite number of something. Or in this case, when we're talking about the past infinite universe, there's an actual infinite number of temporal moments or causal relationships that go back without end. There is no number into the history of the universe. Okay. Actual versus potential. So uh, potential is like, if I look at a line, you could say, well, you know, uh, you could potentially divide that line an infinite number of times. Okay, but that doesn't exactly actually exist in reality, and that's the difference between potential and actual infinites. One of the problems with, uh, with the idea of an actual infinite is it leads you to mathematical absurdities. This is the first of the things that we're going to talk about. The, the reason it leads to mathematical absurdities is uh, imagine that you have an infinite library with an infinite number of red and black books. Every other book is red, every other book is black. All right, how many are there? Well, there's infinite. 
Okay, well, what if I take out all the red books so that all that are left are black books? Now, how many do you have? You still have an infinite number. You just have an infinite number of black books. But I took away half the infinite number. Shouldn't I now have half of infinity, whatever number that is? Well, that's the problem. If you take away half of infinity, you still have infinity. If you add 25 to infinity, you still have infinity. If you subtract 37, uh, you still have infinity. Or 1 billion, you still have infinity because it leads to these mathematical absurdities. Now, some people will say in set theory, there have been developments where now we can say uh, uh, this set here, this is infinity, and we can add to it infinity plus whatever number you want to add. But here's the problem. Not only does infinity itself run into these mathematical absurdities, but there's a second problem, and that is that with the past history of the universe, you don't have uh, you don't even have the first number in the series. You don't have a bookend for this. You've got now this current moment, that could be this bookend, but there's no other bookend at the beginning of the series. It just goes back infinitely, and there was no first moment or first causal relationship. And because of that, what you have is something like a hole without a bottom to it. Uh, try jumping out of a hole without a bottom to it. You can't do that. And so these kind of weird problems and absurdities come up when you try to uh, talk about an actual infinite uh, into the past. Now, there's actually a new issue that I want to raise that came up on an episode of Capturing Christianity and exists in some journal articles. But here we have Rob Coons, and Rob Coons is going to lay out what this new analogy is. Now, it's going to be difficult to understand the first time you hear it, but after he lays it out, we're going to talk about it just a little bit. Okay, so just just hang with me. Let me give the original Benedetti version, okay. and, then, and then I'll explain how I have to tweak it. So, so in the original version, um, you have a, a hapless victim named Fred, who is going to be, who has under a sentence of death. And uh, there are an infinite number of grim reapers, you know, the angels of death or whatever, whose job it is to, to ensure that Fred is dead. Now, each, each uh, Grim Reaper has a specific deadline, specific moment of time in which he's supposed to act, if he's going to act at all. And the Grim Reaper's task is that when that deadline arrives, he checks to see if Fred has already been beheaded by another Grim Reaper. If he has, then he does nothing. If he hasn't been beheaded, then the Grim Reaper beheads him himself at that, at that point in time. <laughs> and I say there's an infinite number, and then this, this, is where the, this is where the trick comes in. So Grim Reaper number one, his, his deadline is exactly one minute after midnight. Okay. Grim Reaper number two has a deadline of 30 seconds after midnight. Three, 15 seconds, four, seven. Uh, let me pause here for a second and make sure you understand something as we're going forward. In this analogy, the start of this is midnight. Uh, the, the last Grim Reaper in the Infinite series is, uh, is at one minute after midnight. And we're going, and so when he says Grim Reaper number one, he's not talking about the first in the series. He's talking about the one at one minute at the end of this series we're talking about. So when he goes backwards, uh, he's going to cut it in half each time with his placement of a Grim Reaper. So at, uh, you know, uh, 30 seconds and then so on and so forth. So it so says 15 seconds, just follow it here. Seven and a half seconds and so on. So the numbers, as the numbers grow, you get closer and closer to midnight rather than the other direction. Right. And but you never actually get there because you've got an infinite number, right, going back from one minute back toward midnight. And this means that there's no, temporally speaking, there's no first Grim Reaper. The first Grim Reaper is the last Grim This is very important for you to understand. There is no first Grim Reaper. Just like in the past history of the universe, there wouldn't be a first moment because it's literally past infinite. And here you have an infinite chain going backwards. If you say, well, that doesn't sound possible. Well, you're starting to see the problem with past infinites, but we're not there yet. Let's keep trucking. Right. So if, you, if Fred gets any finite distance after midnight, no matter how small, no matter what tiny fraction of a nanosecond past midnight, he will already have gotten past an infinite number of Grim Reapers, right? Who are set to kill him. Because even if he passed uh, a portion of that infinite, it's infinite. And remember, subtracting from an infinite or adding to an infinite, you still have infinite. So however far he gets after midnight, however many nanoseconds, as Kuhn says, he still crossed an, an infinite number, an actual infinite number of Grim Reapers. All right. 
That's that's the setup. Yeah. And the problem then is if you ask, well, what happens to Fred? Well, clearly he gets beheaded. Right? There's just no way he's going to survive the whole minute with a. Clearly he gets beheaded because if you line up an infinite chain of Grim Reapers, each of whom's entire purpose is to kill Fred, surely, certainly Fred's going to die, right? We grant this. Certainly he will end up dead. How could he not? The phalanx of, a, of an infinite number of Grim Reapers have to get him. Like then, waiting there with little, yeah. About <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, and so then, but then the crucial question is, but which Grim Reaper kills him? And the answer is none of them. There's no Grim Reaper that can do it. Because if you pick any Grim Reaper number N, right, you have to ask, well, what about N plus 1, N plus 2, N plus 3, N plus 4, all those other Grim Reapers with larger numbers, they were all supposed to kill him if he wasn't already dead before you get to Grim Reaper N. So you'd have exactly the same problem for, for Fred to survive to Grim Reaper N that he would have to survive to the whole minute. In each case, yeah. you'd have to get past an infinite number. So, uh, so Benedetti, I think, was intending this to show that there's something maybe problematic about the idea that you could divide a minute into an infinite number of segments in this way. Uh, and I think um, you know, Aristotelians would have thought, yeah, you, you, you can't. There's something about time. Okay, so the idea that you need to grasp from this is that certainly Fred would end up dead, right? But certainly he does not end up dead, right? So you get contradictory outcomes. So let's run through this again because we're going to augment it and move forward in just a minute. Uh, but, but the first idea is, okay, so to lay the analogy out again, so you've got midnight and then one minute after midnight, right? And between midnight and one minute after midnight, there is an infinite number of Grim Reapers whose sole job is to see if Fred's already dead and if he's not to kill him, right? So, he's, so Fred is totally going to end up dead. And we grant that. He's certainly going to be dead at the one minute mark, okay? But however long he survives past uh, midnight, he's already crossed an infinite number of Grim Reapers who should have killed him but didn't. So even if you want to say, well, okay, the, the, the one at 30 seconds killed him or 15 seconds, okay, but you've got the same problem because the minute didn't really matter. An infinite chain of Grim Reapers should have killed him but didn't. Now, what if you say, well, the first Grim Reaper in the chain killed him. Ah, but remember, there's not a first Grim Reaper because this goes back, this is an infinite number of Grim Reapers. So what you end up with is he crosses an infinite who don't kill him, but surely out of that infinite, someone kills him. So does he get killed or not? The answer is yes, and the answer is no, which leads you to a contradiction, and contradictions are impossible. And Suris wanted to know, why is it that a past infinite series is impossible? It's impossible for this reason. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to explain this more, this idea of contradictions and the impossibility of contradictions in just a few moments and how they relate to mysteries and paradoxes, because to my mind, Cirrus is going to try to claim that this is a uh, mystery perhaps a paradox, but certainly it seems like he's claiming mystery, when in fact, I think that we can demonstrate that it's not a mystery, it is a contradiction, and contradictions are impossible, and he wanted to know, why is the past infinite universe impossible? So now let's allow Coons to augment the analogy a little bit, so that it's more like the past infinite universe than it already is, so that we can make, so that we can understand it. Time that doesn't allow it to be actually divided into an infinite number of periods. But in the case of the Kalam argument, really what we're interested in is whether time itself had a beginning. And so, and so what, what, what I suggest we do is we tweak the argument a little bit. So we'll drop Fred out, so it's less gruesome, nobody's getting beheaded now. We're just going to have an infinite series of, of grim messengers or something, right? And um, that one, the number one at 1 BC, one at 2 BC, third, second at 2 BC, three, 3 BC, and so on, all the way back, assuming that Time is the past is infinite. Now here's the task that each each grim messenger has. Uh, he's going to receive a message from his predecessor. So if you're grim for n, you're going to get it from n plus one. Right? He's going to look at that message, that piece of paper. If it has a number on it that's larger than his own number, that was written on it by one of the earlier grim reapers, he will just then pass the message on to his successor. If it's blank or wonky in some other sort of way. Uh, then Grim Reaper N will write the number N on the piece of paper and pass it on to the successor. Yeah. So again, we can ask uh, at, at 1 BC, or 180, once the whole process is over, uh, will there be a number on the piece of paper? 
Well, the answer is yes, it has to be, right? I mean, uh, assume that there was, if you assume that there was nobody wrote, wrote, wrote on it, then nobody wrote on it until 1 BC, and then the one at 1 BC would write number one on it. So there's no question there has to be a number on the piece of paper. So then we get to the crucial question, which Grim Reaper, which Grim Messenger wrote his number on it? Or what number is on the message, right? Exactly. What message is on what number is is on the message? And there's no possible answer. In fact, we can actually get a contradiction uh, from the story from any particular number that she would set. Yeah, and this is one thing that Proust does a lot is he talks about well, there's a bunch of different paradoxes for causal phonetism, but he likes to point out that in this particular instance we're talking about Grim Grim Reapers, is that we're elucidating like a, a literal formal contradiction. We have like two statements that are literally the opposite of each other. So A and not A. Okay, so now take the idea that you got, that you're still rolling around in your head a little bit, with the Grim Reapers who are supposed to kill Fred. Now, at least this is a less violent um, analogy. But take the same idea, but instead of Fred dying, instead of one of the Grim Reapers killing Fred, what we have here is a number of Grim messengers, right? And uh, instead of killing Fred... The, the the event is them writing their number on uh, on a piece of paper and then handing it on to the next guy. All right, now, if it's a literally past infinite universe and there is no first grim messenger, right, then whichever one writes a number first, you say, well, it's the first one. There is no first one, remember? So whichever one writes his number first, there's already been a past infinite number of messengers who didn't write anything. So if you say, when he says in, whatever random person you want to choose, um, he, he's going to be the first one to write it, and he's going to write something, right? So, that, so certainly it will have an answer. But why didn't the guy before write something? So if you started with the guy before, you would say certainly his is going to have an answer, but certainly it doesn't have an answer, which means you get to an actual contradiction. And contradictions cannot possibly be true. Now, this may require you to listen to this a couple more times and perhaps go over to uh, Capturing Christianity, and I'll link the video in the description, and you can look at it further. But the point that you need to understand is what you get out of this, and even if you don't understand exactly what I've just said here, number one, you can go back to the simpler analogies of the infinite library, right, and removing half the number, and you get these mathematical absurdities and things like that. And it's like a it's like a hole that you can't jump out of because there's no bottom to it, you know, right? There's no beginning. So if you can't get this, you can get those. Those are not too very complex. But the great thing about this one is it results in an actual contradiction. And so the, the, the great thing about contradictions is they're impossible, which means we can rule out the past infinite uh, series of causal events, the past infinite universe. You can rule it out because it results in a contradiction. Now, here's the thing. I don't know whether we're going to see it in the clips that I've selected or not, but somewhere along the way, well, no, we have seen it. Uh, Suris says, look, uh, the only problem with the past infinite is our incredulity about it, right? Like, we can't imagine it. We can't wrap our minds around it. We can't fathom it. In other words, it's mysterious. Uh, a mystery is something where we just don't have all the answers we would like to have. There's no, no contradiction. There's not even the appearance of a contradiction. It's just we don't have all the answers we would like to have, right? Okay. Uh, and, you know, there, there are examples of that. The Trinity is mysterious, right? You say, no, it's contradictory. No, it's not contradictory. It's mysterious. There's no contradiction. God is, uh, the, the Trinity is one, uh, one God who exists as three persons. If it was one God who exists as three gods, contradiction. If it was one person who exists as three persons, contradiction. But one God who exists as three persons is mysterious, I grant you that, but there's no contradiction to even speak of. So that's an example of like a mystery. It's where we'd like to know more, but we don't have all the answers. But a contradiction cannot possibly be true. And that's like, uh, we, you know, the classical examples of a square circle or a married bachelor. They don't exist anywhere in the physical universe, not because we've gone everywhere and checked, but because the very idea is contradictory. It's incoherent, and it cannot possibly be true. And in this case, this Grim Reaper paradox turns out to be a contradiction. It cannot possibly be the case. And if, 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 if this goes through. Now, the way someone would try to get out of this is they could say, well, the uh, analogy doesn't work because the idea of a past infinite chain of messengers wouldn't be possible. 
But here's the thing. We can actually simulate that in the temporal world, in this finite universe. We can set up, and, and uh, Dr. Coons talks about this in the video, you could, you could set up a chain in a classroom and have each person have a, have a time and pass a message around. You could actually simulate this, or you could set up a computer to do it right now. So if it could work in the temporal universe, why couldn't it work in a past infinite universe? The thing is, the analogy works, but it results in this contradiction. It reveals this contradiction. And so for that reason, the past infinite universe seems to be impossible. And so that was a really long answer, but I think it's a relevant one. And I think that for those of you who are up-and-coming apologists right now, I've become convinced that you should understand how to use this uh, Grim Reaper thing to, uh, and Grim Messenger thing to show that you actually get contradictory results, not just mathematical absurdities, but actual contra an actual contradiction if you try to argue for a past infinite causal chain like that in a past infinite universe. So let's keep trucking and see what else we get. Because we have equal knowledge about the beginning of the universe. We have equal knowledge on both sides about the beginning of the universe, period. Or at least the beginning of existence, the beginning of the cosmos. For the beginning of existence, we have no information, not a single bit. Even where the Big Bang is concerned, which is just the beginning of our local space, we can get within a few microseconds of T minus zero, but we can't get past that. We can't even get to where T minus zero actually happens. We can't get to the beginning of the expansion. Um, as a result, in my estimation, any argument one way or the other for infinite or finite can't get us anywhere because there's no evidence either way. We can't actually go back and figure that stuff out. Now, the problem with this is, and Matt Dillahunty does this a lot, so I want you to be aware of it. Now, notice something. What he has done is we've been talking about a philosophical, uh, philosophical reasons why uh, this past infinite universe has serious problems. And uh, he has slipped away from talking about this philosophically and has gone to the scientific responses. And he's basically said, look, uh, science doesn't show us. We, there's, a, there's a limit to what we can know scientifically. Well, that's right. Nobody argues that. This isn't meant to be a scientific case that we're defending about this past infinite universe. This is a philosophical case. Now, we can help it out with the fact of the second law of thermodynamics and everything, but we can actually understand why a past infinite universe has serious problems, not because of science, but because of philosophy. And what we see here is a subtle nod to this either hard or soft scientism that shows up so often in the atheist community online, which is if something can't be demonstrated scientifically, well, then it, we'd have no good reason to believe it. Now, he didn't say that outright, and he might deny it if asked. But we've been talking about a philosophical concept, and what he's done now is to basically say we can't know because science hasn't given this to us. And that is to uh, rely too heavily on science when you have a great philosophical reason for rejecting the past infinite universe. We can use mathematics to get us to close to right now, possibly eventually right to the beginning of the Big Bang. But even that is not necessarily the beginning of the universe because here's the other problem. What does the Big Bang say happened? What does that theory actually say happened? Well, it says that all matter existed in a finite point of space, and then that finite point of space had a period of rapid inflation and expansion. This inflation expansion happened. As a result, we got um, that matter expanded out, and then slowly over time, more heavy elements were able to come out of different reactions that happened as a result of that. And those heavy elements helped lead to the types of planetoids and stuff that we have today. Great. Now, if you notice something, though, at no point did anything come into existence. There's never actually a point in that theorem that says that a single iota of matter came into, ex came into existence. It is assumed that that matter always existed. It was condensed into a, into a very finite space. As a result, we can't exactly argue that the universe began at the Big Bang. We can argue that our local space as we know it, the beginnings of that existence happened there, but that's not the same thing as saying our universe started existing at that point. So, as a result, this whole argument already has some issues. 
No, the argument doesn't have any issues because if the universe cannot be past infinite, then whether or not science, whether or not the if we're talking, the Big Bang is talking about an expansion from a point, and all the matter was bound up in that point. If you know that the universe can't be past infinite, then you you result in a beginning anyway. That's the point. So um, it makes me wonder. I mean, I, this seems like a a guy who has a real interest in these arguments and stuff, but it seems like he's unfamiliar with some of this. All right, let's keep going with it now and hear what else he has to say. Have another dilemma. Either the beginning of the universe was uncaused or caused. We can assume that things don't pop into existence out of nothing. Everything that has a beginning seems to need a cause, right? Ah, okay. So we've already got a little bit of a linguistic issue here, and I don't I don't want to say that the person who made this video is in bad faith in their conversation. It doesn't well, sound good. like they're trying to be super manipulative with their speech, but there was a bit of a bit of a uh, what should I call it? There was a bit of a bait and switch that happened there. If we are assuming the universe I think he was came trying, to, I think he was trying to think of the word equivocation, but I could be wrong. Existence, or the universe as we know it coming came into existence. Remember that it began from a finite point of matter nothing came into existence nothing well but of course if that's if we presume that there was no creation event right like if we presume your position then uh, yeah okay there was no beginning for the physical universe you're just presuming that you're right to say she's wrong that doesn't work started existing but then they go on to say nothing just pops into existence Let's also ignore the fact that just a second ago, they said that there can, or they said that there, uh, there, there are things that are either caused or uncaused. Now they're probably going to lean on all things being caused, but I believe there's a form of logic. Correct me. If I'm wanting to know what what was it that he thought she was bait and switching about? I, that she disagrees with you? I think it stems from a rejection of. The phil or, or maybe he's not aware of the philosophical arguments against a past infinite universe. He didn't respond to any of them. He just asserted that uh, it's hard for us to perceive or conceive of or whatever a past infinite universe. Let me look this up real quick. I'm leaving this in here for a reason. And the reason is, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to respond to something, if you know you're going to take issue with a particular point, why not have that ahead of time instead of looking it up on the spot? And the reason that I point this out, I think Cyrus is a smart guy. I think he's a really smart guy. But he's got, what is it, 26,000, 26.7 thousand subscribers. If you're a parent out there, the, the internet is where people go to get answers. It's where young people, for sure, go to get answers. This is a, an, an, an atheist on YouTube who is responding. And look at all the people he's got in his chat. You know, just, just happy to spend time here listening to him talk about this. As if he's an authority. And people will listen and be convinced by this. And I'm sure, again, I'm sure, Suresh, you're a nice guy. I don't mean to imply anything else. And smart. But... He's sitting here looking stuff up as he's responding. And these are the champions of internet atheism today. Um, I, I don't mean for that to sound you know, mean or upsetting or anything like that. I'm just, I don't know. Maybe that's how he does his live stream. I don't know. All right. So Bertrand Russell uh, wrote in his essay, Why I'm Not a Christian, There is no reason why the world could not have come into being without a cause. Warren Rachel... Uh, in his okay, so <clears throat> so Bertrand Russell just asserted that at least whatever Bertrand Russell said about that, all he read was Bertrand Russell agrees with me. Response to that said to simply state that there's no reason why the world would come into existence without being a first cause, without defending the assertion, is an inadequate argument against the notion of a prime mover. Let's see here. All theories of prime mover be false, assuming prime mover is necessary and prime mover is no cause. Let's see. This is dead air, Cirrus. Come on, man. Okay. 
there's a point here where it says it is possible for something to not have a cause, but that thing would have to have no potential. It would never change, which is the definition of a deity. Oh, I don't, I don't agree with that. So he's, he's, he's doing the research on screen and is coming up with responses uh, th that don't agree with him. Anywho, point is that while it is very intuitive that there is no uncaused cause, that argument is still being had in philosophical circles. Now, granted, to be fair, most people seem to side on the idea that there are no uncaused causes. How <clears throat> However, the other side of this, the other side of that conversation is that even if there are no uncaused causes, we still have not ruled out an infinite regression. And Okay, so see now he's back to the infinite regression, which you've already responded to. All right, let's move on. So I can cause my arm to go up. I caused that. But an event can't be the cause of the beginning of the universe because then that would just be the first event that would need a cause. <laughs> No, 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 no. That is not true at all. Because if you're going to argue, like even within Christian mythology, this is not a true statement. Because in neither science, nor in Christian mythology, nor in several other theologies, is the universe the only thing in existence. The universe is not all that exists. The universe is simply our local space. Okay, first of all, um, let me explain what is going on here and help the video out a little bit. Because this is just a short little video that was made to express the Kalam, uh, something like the Kalam. So let me, let, me, uh, <clears throat> let me help out what I think is being said here. So when you're talking about a the universe having... A beginning. And by that, this is, in fact, I'll go ahead and tell you what he's saying here. He's going to say that, look, universe, definitionally, we're talking about our local representation, our, our local universe, but it could be part of a multiverse. No evidence for that, but it could be part of a multiverse. And uh, who knows how many in that? We call that the whole ball of wax, the cosmos, uh, which is just a Greek world that means a Greek word that means world. Okay, great. Uh, Dill Hunty brought that up in my debate with him. Others bring that up all the time as if it makes a difference. It doesn't uh, respond to the philosophical issues. If you can't have a past infinite cosmos, then this serves as, uh, th th then you can't have a past, you have to have a beginning for the whole ball of wax. That's why I often say that even if you think that there's a multiverse of which our universe is just a part, you're just kicking the can back up the street again because you still need a cause for the multiverse. And the reason for that is because you can't have a past infinite multiverse for the same reasons you can't have a past infinite local representation of the universe or however you want to phrase that. So this whole business about, well, apologists just don't understand because when they say universe, they're, you know, the universe might not be the only thing that exists. Okay, but talk about the whole cosmos if you want. It still doesn't get away from these problems. You're just pushing the problem back. And so if we're talking about a, a universe, a cosmos that has uh, a beginning, then the cause of that universe, and we're going to get more to this in just a moment, must be not made of the contents of the universe, can't be like the things in the universe, and so it can't, it has to be, it can't be in space, it can't be in time, it can't be material. And the reason for that is if you find space, time, or matter, space, time, and matter, that's part of the universe. And that's what we're trying to explain. So you've still, you're still just kicking the problem back. So the cause must be a spaceless, timeless, non-material uh, something, right? That's, that's where that goes. Now, from there, what do you do? And this is where the video comes in, is how could you have... Um, how could you move from a state of timeless nothingness to an event, the beginning of the universe? Well, there are different kinds of causes. You can have event, event causation. That would be if I punched my microphone right here and it swung around and hit me in the head, right? That would be an event that led to another event. You could have um, state, state causation. That's where a state like a frozen pond is causing another state the, uh, to a log to rest on top of that pond. That's state, state. 
But what you would have with the beginning of the universe from a state of timeless nothingness is you would have state event causation. And the answer to state event causation just is a, a personal agent. And the reason for that is, is, is you would have to have, you, there would have to be a, a, a moment. It, a great analogy for this is like a, per, a man sitting in a chair. All right. And uh, no analogy is perfect. This man would have to be omniscient so that he's not thinking through things. He just knows everything instantaneously or simultaneously. And he's, he's sitting there and then he stands up. Now, if you compressed a stopwatch at the moment of his first movement, you could call that T1, right? That's the first moment of time. Um, but that would be a state event causation. The man would go from a state of sitting uh, without motion to an event of standing up. Uh, you need a personal agent for that. And so with the beginning of the universe, you would have God is in a state of Timeless nothingness. He doesn't have to think through and decide, I'm going to do it now. There is no time. You don't need time for that. He knows everything and uh, is omniscient in that sense. So he's in a state of timeless nothingness. And then you have the event of acting, like the event of the man standing. You have state event causation. And you need a personal agent with that. And I could go further and argue that you need a personal agent that has libertarian free will because there was no prior determinism. And libertarian free will also indicates a personal agent. Uh, so... Um, you, that's what's going on there. That's, that's what's going on with these different kinds of causes. Within science, we have this idea called the cosmos. This is where he's going off about universe versus cosmos. We just talked about that. All right, let's keep going. A timeless being... So then they say a timeless being wouldn't need a creator. That's not exactly true. Actually, no, we can, we can go ahead and say that that's true. We can. Because if we accept that a timeless thing, being, however you want to say it, doesn't need a creator, cool. As far as science has been able to tell, the universe is, at least in a sense, infinite. The tiny point of matter that always existed up until the point where it didn't. That point where it didn't was t equals zero. If we... If we are willing to accept that that little finite point did, in fact, exist. Okay, so what he's saying here is like, okay, the, the, this creator, God, um, we, he's fine with, he's trying to say, I think, I'm fine with that not needing a cause for its own existence. And the reason is it could exist infinitely because, after all, if we're going to say that we might be okay with this initial point that then expanded in, in the Big Bang, that that, that it could have existed infinitely well, then we, without, you know, the, the, without a cause before it or whatever, because it's infinite. We, we can be fine with this creator existing infinitely. There's a problem that happens throughout the rest of this video where he uses, uh, and by the way, again, Dillahunty did this in my debate with him. Um, it leads to a great moment in the debate, I think, but you have a confusion of infinite and timeless. That's not the same thing. Infinite is a temporal word as we're using it now, an infinite amount of time. It's, in, it, it's, it's temporal. So to say that the universe is past infinite or that this dot has existed here infinitely, you're talking about the, a timeline that goes on and on and on and on and just never ends. That's not what we're saying about God. We're saying that God is timeless. There is no timeline. Sans the creation of the physical universe, God exists timelessly. So that it's not an infinite past, it's just timeless. That's the difference. And so when people try to say, well, why can't we have an infinite universe if you believe your God is infinite? That's an equivocation because when people talk about God being infinite, they mean that in a different sense than temporally past infinite. God exists timelessly, sans the creation of the universe. Big problem. Then we are willing to accept that it existed. In All right, let's move on quickly because I'm running out of time. And I'll bet my wife wants me to come home for dinner. This is at the end of the day. If you are going to engage in counter-apologetics... Oh, this is great, because what's what he's going to do... Here, now, now, I appreciate this, Cirrus. I do. You hoped that someone would appreciate this. I appreciate it. Because what he's going to tell people is not to argue with the who made God thing. But for the wrong reasons. All right. Please do not do the who caused God thing. That is a bad counter-apologetic. I agree. It's really, really bad. I agree. Please stop. 
Thank you, sir. See us in my chat. If you have heard this, you know it's cringy. I do. It's it's it sounds like it's the right point, right? To go well. If everything needed a cause, who caused God? That's intuitive. That's very intuitive. First of all, the argument is not if everything needs a cause. It's everything that begins to exist must have a cause. It's worded that way because theists all the way back have understood that God is the uncaused cause. God exists timelessly. In a timeless state, you don't need beginnings or endings because it's timeless. Beginning and ending are temporal words. So God exists timelessly. Uh, there is, there's no need. It would be absurd to talk about a beginning or ending for God in that sense. Intuition is type one thinking. Type one thinking is not bad. Type one thinking can make you survive. Type one thinking is your intuition. It's the first thing that comes up. It's your. I think we're going to get down here to where he explains why he thinks it's bad to do that. This is a common question. Oh, no, I missed it. But again, it has. I think it has to do with this. Look, we already believe in infinite stuff, so God can be infinite. If the past might be infinite, God might be past infinite. We've talked about that already. But that's not the reason that's bad. The reason that's bad is what I just said. God exists timelessly, and beginnings and endings only are meaningful in temporal existence, not in timeless existence. And who caused God? God needs a cause because everything has a cause, right? Wrong. We're not saying everything needs a cause. Whatever begins to exist needs a cause. God didn't begin to exist. Correct. If at the if beginning of the universe you have the time, God, space, and matter coming correct. into existence, Sorry, you need a cause that, that literally transcends the universe. It has to be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial or not. Oh, wait, hold on. Here's the. Did anybody notice they just shoehorned that one in? We didn't shoehorn anything. Did anybody recognize that? That last part, that last part they said there, it must be immaterial. Why? Why must the cause for the universe be immaterial? That one is just shoved in there. It's shoved in there without any justification whatsoever. The only justification that one would have for saying that the cause of the universe must be immaterial would be by saying or would be by them arguing against you by saying, um, well, how would a material thing cause the universe? Except it's not my job to say... No, it's not how would a material thing cause the universe. The, the thing about this is, and, and it would be fair if he said, look, the, the, the video, and I haven't watched the video uh, on its own without his commentary, but um, the, the video may have not have gone into this, but... I would think Cirrus would be aware of this since he enjoys talking about this stuff online, I, you know, on a YouTube channel. The reason that it's space, time, and matter is in any debate on this issue that you ever pull up, specifically any William Lane Craig debate. I mean, he's like the most famous apologist, right? So if, you're, if you've watched any William Lane Craig, he's probably used this argument, like in almost all his debates. And if he's used this argument, you've heard him explain why. Because... Generally speaking, the universe is time, space, and matter. So if we're talking about the cause of the universe, it would have to things can't cause themselves to come into existence. So it would have to be a spaceless, timeless, non-material something. That's why. I've often used digitally animated films uh, like Toy Story. What caused Toy Story to come into existence? Was it Buzz or Woody or Mr. Potato Head or those little aliens that worship the claw? No. Why? Because those are a part of the digitally created universe that we're trying to explain. We know that nothing in that digitally created universe could cause the universe to come into existence. Something outside had to do that. Director, uh, screenwriters, musicians, voice actors, they caused that digital universe to come into existence from outside. Nothing in the universe could cause. And in the same way that Buzz, Woody, and Mr. Potato Head couldn't cause the digital universe to come into existence, time, space, and matter, the players in this universe, couldn't cause the universe to come into existence because that would be ca something causing itself to come into existence. So the cause must be spaceless, timeless, and non-material. That's how you get there. And, and that is literally in every debate on this issue I've ever heard. And um, certainly, if you ever read a book on this, th this, is, this is what comes up. So, hopefully that helps. It's not my job to find the justification for your argument. 
not, not asking you to. I, I just gave it. All right, let's move on now here. We're almost done. That would be one refutation I have for the cosmological argument. Another one that I have is that if, if someone attempts to use the cosmological argument to argue for their god... And as he said, he, he was responding to what somebody in the chat said. He said that would be one refutation. A refutation of this argument. He said, here's the other one I have. This is supposed to be a refutation of the argument. Cosmological argument gets you to a first cause, period. The refutation of the argument is... It might work. <laughs> it might actually get you, you know, if, because he hasn't, it could, you know, it could actually get you to something. Not Christianity, but some kind of God, right? Assuming something very important that I will get into in a minute. The cosmological argument gets us to a first cause. That's your reputation? That's all that it's supposed to do. That's all the, I don't mean to be snarky. Suris, again, I got love for you, man. But, the Kalam is supposed to get you to a first cause. It's not supposed to get you to Christianity. That's your refutation of the Kalam, is to grant the Kalam? Now, I know that he doesn't grant the Kalam. He has, he's talked about his issues with it, and we've responded to all of them, but at least, I think, I, most of them anyway, all the ones that were relevant that I felt like responding to, I guess. Um, it's, it's an hour-long video. You don't want me to doing a three-hour video on a one-hour video. But, um, the, and we're at an hour now, as I'm speaking. But the point that I want to make here is is... He's saying, like, at this point, here's my refutation. It, it, it could work, but it would only get you to a, a first cause. That's all it's supposed to do. That's all it's supposed to do. That's a refutation? I, I don't know, man. It's getting late in the day. I get snarkier as the day goes on. You guys know this about me. But that first cause isn't necessarily the Christian God. In fact, the cosmological argument was originally used for the Muslim version of Yahweh or Allah. You know, a lot of times, he didn't do this, but a lot of times atheists point that out like it's some kind of a surprise to us. Like, like Christian apologists didn't know this. There's a misunderstanding here about the point of an apologist using a theistic argument, an argument for God's existence. We'll get to it in just a minute. Um, yes. In fact, let's go ahead and skip to the last point here. Later in this point, he goes on. This is how he ends his video. So if we agree with the Kalam, we can get to deism at least if we really wanted to accept a deity. But that doesn't get us to Christianity. That doesn't get us anywhere past that. Like, to, to quote Christopher Hitchens, congratulations, you've made me a deist. Now you've got the Thank rest you. of the work to do. You may wish to be a deist, as my uh, heroes Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine were. And you may not wish to abandon the idea that there must be some sort of first or proximate cause or prime mover of uh, the known and observable world and universe. But even if you can get yourself to that position, which we unbelievers maintain is always subject to better so and more perfect and more elegant explanations, even if you can get yourself to that position, all your work is still ahead of you. All right, so all your work is still ahead of you. So look, the, here, I don't know how many times I've said this on videos, and I know that not everyone has seen my videos yet, <laughs> but here's the thing. The theistic arguments, like the Kalam, like the teleological design arguments, like the moral arguments, like the ontological arguments, what these are meant to do is to get you to some God. Like It gets you to God, but it doesn't get you all the way to Christianity. We grant that. We grant that a Muslim could use the Kalam, of course. We, this, is not, this is not a problem. We're all aware of this. I have a book on my shelf called Five Views on Apologetics from Zondervan's Counterpoint series. It goes through the various apologetic approaches that different kinds of Christians take. Uh, you guys are aware of this. You know there's presuppositional apologists out there, right? They argue differently than what are called evidential apologists. And under evidential apologists, you actually have classical apologists and evidentialist apologists and cumulative case apologists. And there's even something else called reformed epistemology. There's various approaches. They're also listed in Norman Geisler's Christian Apologetics. And they're also listed in Avery Dulles's great tome on the history of apologetics. And you should get all of those books and read them. And please read them because I want, you, I want people to understand a classical apologist, which is what I am, which is what William Lane Craig is. A classical apologist is interested in a two-step approach to show first that God exists and then to follow that with a case for the resurrection or otherwise for the divinity of Jesus. To show that God exists and then to narrow the focus to Jesus. That's what classical apologists do. 
And so when we bring the Kalam, we don't intend. I've, I've heard so many people then say, and then you just shoehorn it into the Christian God. No, that is not what happens. Uh, we follow that with a resurrection case. Are there apologists who are debating an issue like, does God exist? And they don't go on to the Jesus stuff. Yeah, there are. But the way we're approaching this is we show that God exists and then that Jesus rose from the dead. That's how it works. If you understood that, if people understood that, if Hitchens understood that, we wouldn't. But hey, guess what? If you're willing to go so far as Christopher Hitchens didn't go this far, but as far as he, as far as he sounded like he was going in that video, and you sound like you're going here, was hey, you've convinced me of that, but you've got all your work ahead of you. You know what? I'll call that half credit for now, and I'll keep on working with you on the resurrection, because that would be huge. Because guess what? We would have moved you from atheism to agnosticism to at least deism. We're making we're making progress here. I've got hope, Surus. Cirrus, I've got hope, and I hope to see you all next time on Trinity Radio.